Welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman, and I'm here with Linda Carlisle on Sunday, July 30th, 2023. Here's the day's top news. In this episode, we will talk about Russian President Vladimir Putin expressing openness to peace talks on the Ukraine conflict, military leaders in Niger warning against armed intervention following a coup, the United States pledging to assist Australia in producing guided rocket systems, Elon Musk's plan to transform Twitter into a platform similar to WeChat, and the Pentagon investigating a critical compromise of communications across 17 U.S. Air Force facilities. Story number one. Russian President Vladimir Putin, as reported by the BBC, has expressed openness to peace talks on the Ukraine conflict, following a meeting with African leaders in St. Petersburg. He suggested that an African peace initiative, as well as a Chinese one, could serve as a basis for negotiations. However, he also stated that it is difficult to implement a ceasefire when the Ukrainian army is on the offensive. Ukraine and Russia have previously set preconditions for negotiations, with Ukraine seeking the reinstatement of its 1991 borders, which Russia opposes. Putin also defended the Kremlin's arrest of critical voices, claiming that some individuals were harming Russia from within. He denied plans to intensify actions on the Ukrainian front for now. The Russia-Africa summit took place after a delegation from seven African countries met with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky and Putin last month. On the ground, Russia claimed that two office blocks were damaged in a drone attack on Moscow, which the city's mayor blamed on Ukraine. In Sumy, Ukraine, one person was killed and five injured in a rocket attack, allegedly carried out by Russia. Another missile struck an open area in Zaporizhia, killing two people and injuring one. Ukrainian forces are gradually advancing near the eastern city of Bakhmut, which was seized by Russian forces in May. Do you ever think, Linda, that the road to peace can be just as complex as the conflict itself? I mean, look at this recent statement from Putin regarding the Ukraine crisis. You got these two sides locked in a bitter battle, but they're both setting preconditions that the other side is vehemently against. It's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube that keeps changing colors. I see what you mean, Mark. The process of peace negotiations is often fraught with numerous complications and challenges particularly when there are deep-seated disagreements and mistrust between the conflicting parties. It becomes a delicate balance of addressing the needs and grievances of both sides, whilst also maintaining a forward momentum toward resolution. This is indeed reminiscent of various historical peace talks, such as the Korean War Armistice Talks, where each side had its own set of non-negotiables. And, you know, what's interesting here is Putin's mention of African and Chinese peace initiatives as potential basis for peace talks. It's a rare move, and it kind of makes you wonder about the role of these foreign initiatives in resolving the conflict. Can they provide a fresh perspective, or will they just complicate things further? That's a thoughtful question, Mark. The involvement of third parties in peace negotiations can indeed introduce new perspectives and potential solutions, but it can also bring additional challenges. Each of these initiatives would likely have its own approach and priorities, shaped by their own geopolitical interests. Yet, if managed effectively, these initiatives could help to facilitate dialogue and build trust between the conflicting parties. However, it's crucial that these initiatives are perceived as impartial and credible by both sides. Right, Linda. And, you know, there's another aspect of this whole situation that's been on my mind. Putin's defense of the arrest of internal critics. Now, I am all for national security, but it raises a big question about the state of democracy in Russia. 
Can a country with limited internal dissent really negotiate in good faith? That's a profound point, Mark. A robust democracy allows for a diversity of opinions and open criticism, which can lead to more comprehensive and sustainable solutions. However, if internal dissent is suppressed, it could potentially limit the range of solutions considered and skew the negotiation process. It also sends a message to the international community about the country's commitment to democratic principles. Yeah, and that's something the global community has to keep an eye on. I mean, in the end, it's not just about ending the conflict, but also about ensuring that the resolution is fair, sustainable, and supports the democratic principles we all hold dear. A peace process is not just about ending violence. It's about creating conditions for sustainable peace and justice. And that often requires addressing deep-rooted issues and power imbalances that may have contributed to the conflict in the first place. It's a complex process that requires careful negotiation, patience, and above all, a genuine commitment to peace. Story number two. Military leaders in Niger have warned against any armed intervention in the country as West African leaders meet to discuss further actions to pressure the army to restore constitutional order after a coup last week. According to The Guardian, the heads of state of the Economic Community of West African States, ICAWAS, and the West African Economic and Monetary Union are considering suspending Niger from their institutions, cutting off the country from the regional central bank and financial market, or closing borders. The coup leaders have issued statements warning against military intervention and calling for citizens to protest against ICAWAS and show support for the new military leaders. The coup has been condemned by Niger's neighbors and international partners, who refuse to recognize the new leaders and demand the restoration of President Mohamed Bazoum. The European Union and France have suspended financial support and cooperation on security with Niger, while the African Union has demanded that the military return to their barracks and restore constitutional order within 15 days. The coup has raised concerns about the future of the fight against jihadist insurgencies in the Sahel region as Niger has been seen as a key ally in this effort. Has anyone else noticed that military coups seem to be happening more frequently in Africa? Just last week, we had this coup in Niger, and not long before that, we had similar situations in Mali and Burkina Faso. It's like there's a coup contagion effect going on. Now, I'm not saying it's as simple as that, but it's a trend that's hard to ignore. It's a deeply concerning trend that threatens the stability of the region. The recent coup in Niger is particularly alarming because of the country's strategic importance in combating jihadist insurgencies in the Sahel region. The international community's response, especially ECOWAS and the African Union, has been strong, demanding a restoration of constitutional order. But the question remains, will this be enough to deter future military incursions into political power? Exactly. And let's not forget the role of the citizens in all this. I mean, the coup leaders in Niger are calling for public protests against ECOWAS, and we've seen in other countries where the public opinion has been divided on these coups. It's a complex situation, and I think it's important to remember how varied the responses can be. It's not just the international community that matters here, but also the people living in these countries. Certainly, Mark. The citizens' perspective is crucial. In many of these instances, the military coups are in response to perceived corruption or failures of the existing government. However, the long-term impacts of these coups often lead to instability and even more hardships for the citizens. It's a delicate balance between the need for change and the potential fallout of these abrupt shifts in power. 
And that brings us to the role of foreign aid and international presence, right? Niger, for example, has been a major recipient of Western aid, especially from the EU and the US, as part of their efforts to combat jihadist insurgencies in the region. Now, with the coup, there's a real risk that this support could be withdrawn, which could have far-reaching implications not just for Niger, but for the wider Sahel region. The withdrawal of international aid, or a shift in international alliances, can drastically impact the stability of these nations. It's a multi-layered issue, deeply rooted in the historical, socio-political, and economic context of these countries. Addressing it requires a nuanced and comprehensive approach that takes into account all these factors. Story number three. According to Al Jazeera, the United States has pledged to assist Australia in producing guided multiple launch rocket systems by 2025. This commitment was made during the annual Australia-U.S. ministerial Ausman Dialogue held in Queensland. Al Jazeera reports that the U.S. will also expedite Australia's access to priority munitions through a streamlined acquisition process. Australian Defence Minister Richard Marles expressed hope that missile manufacturing could begin in Australia within two years, and both countries emphasised the importance of bilateral security and defence cooperation. The talks were overshadowed by a helicopter crash during a military exercise, with four crew members feared dead. Good day, Linda. This announcement about the U.S. helping Australia ramp up their defense capabilities is certainly a game-changer. I mean, it's a clear response to the increasing tensions in the Pacific, especially with China. And it's not just about military might. It's also about economic growth and job creation. This move could potentially strengthen Australia's defense industry, don't you think? Well, Mark, I see where you're coming from, but I think we need to be cautious about such developments. Yes, it might provide a short-term boost to Australia's defense industry, but at what cost? This could stoke further tensions in the region and contribute to an arms race. And let's not forget the ethical issues involved in arms production and trade. I get that, Linda, but isn't having a strong defense industry crucial for a country's sovereignty and security? Besides, we're talking about guided multiple-launch rocket systems here, not nuclear weapons. It's about equipping Australia with the necessary tools to protect itself. After all, a country has a right to defend its shores, right? Sure, Mark. But we need to consider the broader implications. It's not just about Australia's right to defend itself. It's also about how this move could potentially upset the balance of power in the region and trigger a new kind of Cold War. And let's not forget, it's not just the production, it's also the potential use of these weapons that we should be concerned about. Hmm, I see your point, Linda. It's a delicate situation, no doubt. But remember, it's not like the U.S. is going at it alone. They're working with their allies, which is a key aspect of any effective defense strategy. This isn't about inciting conflict. It's about maintaining peace. Yes, Mark. The intention might be to maintain peace, but the means to achieve it can sometimes lead to a different result. The path to peace isn't through increasing militarization, but through diplomacy and mutual understanding. The global community needs to prioritize dialogue over arms for a sustainable and peaceful future. Story number four. According to the BBC, Elon Musk is planning to transform Twitter into a platform similar to China's mega-app WeChat. Musk has praised WeChat and aims to create something similar with Twitter in an effort to increase revenue for the struggling company. However, experts believe that the adoption of digital payments in the Western world may pose a challenge to Musk's ambitions.
Do you remember when social media was just about sharing pictures, thoughts, and catching up with friends, Linda? Now it's morphing into an everything app, a one-stop shop for all our needs. Take China's WeChat, for instance. It's not just a networking platform anymore. It's a confluence of so many services, social, financial, even governmental. It's like carrying your life in your pocket. And now Elon Musk wants to replicate this with X. The rise of everything apps like WeChat is truly a game changer. What makes WeChat unique is its ability to seamlessly incorporate a multitude of services into its platform, from messaging and social media to financial transactions and government services. It's become a vital part of daily life for many in China, so much so that it's almost impossible to live there without it. Yeah, it's fascinating, but also a bit unnerving, don't you think? I mean, the convenience is undeniable. But when one app is so deeply woven into the fabric of society, it raises some serious concerns about privacy and surveillance. Although WeChat's integration into all aspects of daily life provides ease and efficiency, it also opens up potential issues around data privacy and government censorship. The app's reach affects every corner of Chinese life, and with state control over the internet, it can become dangerous for people to express dissenting views on the platform. Right. And that brings us to Elon Musk's ambitions with X. He's clearly inspired by WeChat's success. But Linda, do you think such a concept would work in the West? We're talking about very different market dynamics and societal norms. That's a very valid point, Mark. There are certain factors that might pose challenges. For instance, the West's strong competition regulation could prevent an app like X from blocking rival platforms. Plus, Western societies may not be as ready to transition to a completely cashless society, a key factor in WeChat's success. However, it's also worth noting that the integration of social media with digital payments could be the secret sauce of the super app. Hmm, so there's still a lot to consider. But regardless, it's clear that the future of social media is leaning more towards these everything apps. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds, especially with X. Story number five. The Pentagon is investigating a critical compromise of communications across 17 U.S. Air Force facilities after a 48-year-old engineer at the Arnold Air Force Base in Tennessee allegedly took home government radio technologies, as reported by The Guardian. The equipment, which cost nearly $90,000, included radio communication technology used by the Air Education and Training Command, AETC, affecting 17 Defense Department installations. Investigators found that the engineer had unauthorized access to the AETC radio network and possessed administrative passwords and electronic system keys. Witnesses and co-workers reported that he had sold radios and equipment, displayed inappropriate behavior, and had possible access to FBI communications and Tennessee state agencies. The FBI is working with the Air Force on the investigation. The engineer, whose name has not been disclosed, has an extensive background in cybersecurity and radio communications. This incident follows a recent leak of Pentagon documents and concerns about alleged Chinese malware hidden in American facilities that could disrupt military deployments. The Biden administration is working to defend critical infrastructure and eliminate the malware. When I think about this recent security breach at the Pentagon, man, it's deeply unsettling. I mean, an insider compromising the communications of 17 Air Force facilities. That's a serious blow to national security. What do you make of this, Linda? Indeed, it's very alarming, Mark. It exposes a critical vulnerability within our security infrastructure. Insider threats are a recurring issue, not just for the military, but for many organizations. 
They can cause significant damage as we see in this case. They know the system from inside, making their actions even more potent. Right, right. And it's not just a one-off incident. We've seen similar situations before, like that young Air National Guardsman, Jack Tykesera, who leaked hundreds of Pentagon documents. It's like we're dealing with a double-edged sword here. The Tykesera case was another severe instance of an insider threat. It's crucial to remember that such threats often stem from individuals with extensive access and knowledge of the system they're infiltrating. In this recent case, the engineer had a background in cybersecurity and radio communications. He clearly knew how to exploit the system. Yeah, that's a scary thought. So, Linda, how can we spot these potential insiders? Are there certain red flags we should be looking out for? There are indeed certain indicators, Mark. In this case, the engineer's erratic behavior, financial problems, and unauthorized possession of Air Force equipment all raised suspicions. However, identifying potential threats isn't always straightforward. It requires continuous vigilance, robust security protocols, and perhaps most importantly, fostering a culture of trust and responsibility within the organization. I see. I see. So it's a combination of factors. But once these threats are identified, how effective are our current mechanisms for responding to these security violations? Well, Mark, our response mechanisms are constantly evolving. In recent years, there has been a significant push towards improving threat detection capabilities and tightening security protocols. But incidents like this one remind us that there is always room for improvement. The key is to ensure that our responses are swift, comprehensive, and designed to prevent future incidents. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.